Welcome to Nanny Og's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 15, Lords and Ladies, and Trollbridge. We, we have another twofer here, another double-double, as you would say. Mm. We're going to talk about a novel and a short story, although this one is... A little longer than Theater of Cruelty was. Approximately three times longer. Theater of Cruelty is one of the shortest short stories I think I've ever read, to be honest with you. Yeah. But before we get there, I do want to talk about, we had a Twitter comment from at Scrutton who tweeted at us to say that they always took the bloody stupid Johnson joke as a riff on Capability Brown, the famous English gardener and landscape architect. Have you ever heard of Capability Brown, Nigel? But uh, this also like feels like something I might have heard as like a correct answer in u- university challenge or something, you know? It ha- has that vibe of knowing to it. I had never heard of Capability Brown. I mean, I'm not British, so I'm, I'm not sure why I would have heard of Capability Brown. But I did some research based on this comment, and he was born Lancelot Brown. Oh, so he swapped one ridiculous name for an equally ridiculous one. Exactly, exactly. And he lived in the 18th century. So he was born in 1715 and died in 1783. Was a pretty famous like English landscape and garden expert and he's sort of known as like the last great English 18th century artist in terms of like landscaping. He was nicknamed Capability Brown because he would tell his clients that their property had capability for improvement. So that's how he got his nickname, I guess. And I mean, I'm not going to go through all of his like, you know, the history of who he was or anything like that, but it sounds like he was one of those people that had like plans for just like not only just gardens, but also like different kinds of landscaping and like urban projects and stuff like that. So it would make sense to me that this might be someone that Terry Pratchett sort of had in the back of his head as he was writing the bloody stupid Johnson character. Just the fact that going around and saying every property has capability feels very Discworld, doesn't it? Such a strange catchphrase too, like... Your property has capability. Normally it's potential, right? That is the word I would have picked, but I guess potential brown sounds odd. This is like something you don't want. I think I'd rather be called bloody stupid than potential. Yeah. And I love it when people on Twitter tell us things about the jokes that, like, maybe it's a reference we don't get. Because, I mean, there's so many references in these books that it would be impossible for the two of us to get all of them or to have even time to talk about all of them on this show. So I always like it when people are like, oh, well, I think this bit is actually a reference to this. That's really wonderful. We love it. Give us some more. If you, if you think of anything that we don't get on the show, let us know. We, we're, we love this stuff. I mean, I spent like probably half an hour looking at stuff from, about Capability Brown yesterday. <laughs> if you think we are references to something, let us know. That almost is like a stranger than fiction. Are we going to have a narrator break in at any minute to talk about us? 
It was at this moment that Tessa and Nigel realized there was a voice coming from behind them. Would you rather have the Stranger Than Fiction Emma Thompson narrator or the Discworld narrator? Mm, see, because I thought you were going to ask just which one would I want, and I would have I would have said the Stanley Parable narrator. Mm. But between those two, the Discworld narrator, probably. And not just because we're doing a Discworld podcast. Like, I mean, if we were doing a Stranger Than Fiction podcast, and you asked me the same question, I'd say Discworld. I see. What would a Stranger Than Fiction podcast even be like? I mean... I don't know. Is there any? Is there a surprising dearth of Stranger Than Fiction podcasts? Who knows? Who knows? Let's start by talking about Troll Bridge, the short story that we read today. Just like with Theater of Cruelty, I read this in A Blink of the Screen, which is a collection of the shorter fiction of the Discworld. Trollbridge was published in 1991 for a collection entitled After the King, Stories in Honor of J.R.R. Tolkien. In fact, there's a little note at the beginning where Pratchett sort of contextualized why he thought that this particular story belonged in that collection, which we should definitely talk about because I think he's absolutely right when he talks about how the vibe of this story is very similar to a specific vibe at the end of The Return of the King. There is a film adaptation of this short story, which I was not aware of until we read this. So I'm really excited to actually watch it. But it premiered in 2019 after a Kickstarter campaign in 2011. It's actually now available on YouTube. So you can just go and watch the adaptation based on this short story. I'm very excited to watch it. I haven't watched it yet because I just found out about it yesterday. Very, very brief summary. Our friend, Cohen the Barbarian, who we haven't seen for a while now, challenges a troll to a fight and ends up reminiscing about the way the Discworld has changed instead. Only about 12 pages. What were your first thoughts on this story, Nigel? So for the most part, I was kind of like, oh, it's largely unremarkable up until like near the end where Cohen Mm -hmm. is just sitting and talking. Uh, and his decision at the end. I I really enjoyed that part of it. As far as I know, this is the only... Lords and Ladies and this one are the only books that really have an in-depth look at a troll bridge. The, the troll bridge in Lords and Ladies might show up briefly again in some of the other witches' books, but I believe that this is like the most time we spend on a troll bridge. So that's why I paired these two together. It is mostly about Cohen the Barbarian and Micah the Troll, who is underneath this bridge, which is a different bridge. It's not the Linker Bridge. It is a tenuous connection. So we haven't seen Cohen in a bit. In a hot minute. In fact, I think the last time we saw him was the Light Fantastic. Is that correct? Yeah, where he gets his teeth. Well, his dentures. What did you think about his brief appearance here? I mean, I think it's important to the story that Trollbridge is trying to tell overall, and that's tied into, again, its place is coming, you know, being stories to do with Tolkien, you know, like the vibe of after the return of the king. Mm-hmm. You know, they have someone who's like long, long past his prime coming and doing so very much like like Beowulf when he goes to fight the dragon. That's what I was thinking of. It's a Beowulf story. Which, not too far away from Tolkien, because again, Tolkien was very inspired by 
or early and uh, middle English legends. In the, the very brief note at the beginning of this story in a blink of a screen, Pratchett says, it seemed to me that there was a mood I could aim for. Things change, things pass. You fight a war to change the world and it changes into a world with no place for you, the fighter. Those who fight for the bright future are not always by nature well-fitted to live in it. Sawmills oust the spiders from the dark wood. The endless plains are fenced. And to me, one of the best parts about the end of The Return of the King to me, which I don't think the film film series or the film trilogy really captured this very well because they took out a lot of the stuff at the end of The Return of the The King. The scouring of the Shire? Yeah. One of my favorite parts. Yeah, the scouring of the Shire and some of the stuff that happens after that. There's a real sense in that those scenes, that particular narrative in the book, that these four characters who come back, right, from this long journey, they don't... Their roles are not the same in the Shire. Uh, in a lot of ways, these are characters that have been really changed by what they've gone through. And in Frodo's case, he doesn't belong there anymore, which is why he leaves ultimately with the elves. Like mm. this idea is that he went through all of this stuff. And I think he even says that, like, we saved the Shire, but I can't live here anymore, basically. And he can't live there anymore. But then, like, even the ones who can live there, like Sam, Mary, and Pippin, their function in society is drastically different than it was when they left. I could see the connection instantly between that and the way that Cohen was talking about we fought in all these wars for what, you know, for the world to change this drastically. Like they told us it was a brighter future, but the landscape doesn't even look the same as it did. Yeah. I mean, especially because the Lord of the Rings is just like an allegory for people coming home from the First World War and post-traumatic stress disorder, basically. Tolkien would have hated to hear you say that. (laughs) He doesn't like that, yeah. He did not like the idea of Lord of the Rings being an allegory. (laughs) But it is, though. So much of it is. It does feel like a lot of his experiences from the war affected the way that he wrote about homecoming. You are absolutely right. Not to get too into it, because I understand that, but, like, it's, I don't know, it's too obvious in so many ways to not feel like it is, even if Tolkien didn't intend it. Like, I mean, the fact that Frodo comes back, and he's received this great wound, you know, and he comes back, and he's lost fingers, but the wound from Weathertop, you know, he still feels it's a phantom pain. I have often wanted to write a journal article or something about the way that chronic pain and Frodo exist in this series, because Frodo suffers a lot from chronic pain, both traumatic and just like from actual disabling wounds that he has. And as someone who has a lot of chronic pain, I just don't feel like people have focused that much on this character at the end of the books. This is kind of getting off topic because. I mean, I guess not, because Cohen is elderly, and he also has a lot of chronic pain that just comes from being someone who's old and who has survived so much. Yeah, it's something we don't see in fiction a lot, because the good kings die, you know, like all the noble virtuous people die in war, or they live long, you know, and they stay kind of the same age in the glory of their youth 
type thing. Mm-hmm. Like I know in Lord of the Rings, not to go back to it, but it's said that Aragorn dies after a long, long while. But we never really see that. It's just like, oh, he does that. Yeah, we don't see him as an old man. We leave him in the prime of his youth. Whereas, like, I'm reminded of something Granny Weatherwax says in Lords and Ladies, where it's like, magic doesn't keep you younger, it just keeps you old longer. And I think that's part of Cohen's purpose as a character, is the idea of actually showing us what a character like this would look like when they're old. Because we don't usually get to see these characters when they're old. We only, like you said, we only see them when they're young. The only other character I can think of like this where we see him when he's elderly is, like you said, Beowulf. We see him when he's old with the dragon. But most of the time in fantasy, we, like you said, we, the, the camera pans away, right? The, the film ends before we get to old age. I found the stuff that Cohen said about the woods, the woods disappearing. And I think my favorite part was when he said, I can remember when a man could ride all the way from here to the Blade Mountains and never see another living thing. He fingered his sword, at least not for long. He threw the butt of his cigarette into the water. It's all farms now, all little farms run by little people and fences everywhere. Everywhere you look, farms and fences and little people. I found that quite sad. The idea of like a fantasy world being fenced in, being changed in this way. It's difficult because like I do like the steampunk aspects of the Discworld. And I think that, you know, Terry Pratchett wouldn't necessarily say that the world that they're coming up with isn't a better world. But there is a sort of sadness to the way that things were, like the magicness the magicness, the magical nature of the world passing away or transforming into something else. There's so much beauty in fantasy worlds, and I'm, rem- I'm reminded of my comments about Two Flower, which is that, like, if I lived in a fantasy world, I'd never shut the fuck up about it. <laughs> but the, yeah, the whole concept of it being... Commercialized not, is not the word I'm looking for, but, like, over-inhabited, you know? Where mm-hmm. it's just... I think the impact of humans after a certain point just becomes detrimental. We've we've long since passed that here on Round World. <laughs> I like calling it Round World. Yeah, I'm gonna start I, calling Earth that Round World. Just exclusively. <laughs> People are like you know in academic context and whatever they'd be like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" <laughs> but it definitely has the feeling of like you know. Oh, what's that line? We were never so young again. Or, no. Oh, fuck. There's a good poem. Give me one second. It's it's by Philip Larkin. It's called MCM XIV, which is, like, about a photo he saw of people standing outside of, like, a recruitment office during the First World War. And it's those long, uneven lines standing as patiently as if they were stretched outside the Oval or Villa Park, the crowns of hats, the sun on mustached, archaic faces, grinning as if it were all an August bank holiday lark. And the shut shops, the bleached, established names on the sun blinds, the farthings and sovereigns and dark-clothed children at play, calling after kings and queens, the tin advertisements for cocoa and twist in the pubs wide open all day, and the countryside not caring, the place names all hazed over with flowering grasses and fields shadowing doomsday lines under wheat's restless silence. The differently dressed servants with tiny rooms in huge houses, the dust behind limousines, 
Never such innocence, never before or since, as changed itself to past without a word. The men leaving the gardens tidy, the thousands of marriages lasting a little while longer. Never such innocence again. It is sad, and I feel like that sadness is in Tolkien, not just in mm. the scouring of the Shire, but also this idea of like the elves are leaving, which of course elves leaving is not <laughs> a bad thing when it comes to Terry Pratchett, but in Tolkien it is. The elves are leaving, you know, the world is changing. It's not the way that it used to be. And I feel like that's true in, in quite a bit of the mythology that Tolkien especially was working in as well. Like, there used to be more magic. There used to be more mythological things happening. And they're not anymore. Have you read um, Underworld by Don DeLillo? I have not. It's an interesting book. It's about the Cold War, but the prologue... So it it tells the story of the Cold War, but in reverse through the history of people who owned a particular baseball that we used in the shosh heard around the world, um, that famous baseball game in the 1950s. But the, the, the prologue introduces us to this character, Carter, and it starts off, he speaks in your voice, American. But then the end of it, it's a line, the end of the prologue really, really sticks with me. It's just, the line is just, all of this is falling indelibly into the past. Mm. You know, because like, I like Cohen, yeah, when Cohen hears about what's happening with um, the forests being dug up and overpaved and, you know, being planted with quicker growing wood, which is easier to sell and that kind of thing, you know, he's like, I used to be in that forest. But there's also, such a distance between like past and present and like actuality and idea you know there's what does he say oh there was a king i'm sure there was a king i never met him and i think there were a few wizards too i mean and that kind of also reminded me like like the idea even in middle earth even in the narrative of the lord of the rings that there were probably people in like the gondor army like cohen who never met aragorn who fought in this war and who kind of only vaguely knew what was going on, but knew that they had to fight for the better world, right? Or to save their families or whatever, but didn't actually, wasn't actually part of the narrative that we actually read about in Lord of the Rings. It's this whole thing where it's like, well, it's the end of all things. So you're going to kind of have to pitch your lot in one way or another, but still like, you know, you, you don't have, you don't get to make that choice. The choice is made for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. It's really interesting to bring up or, or to consider Laviolus in this context, you know, from Eric. Yeah. Because he's a soldier and he's away at war. I mean, like, he's kind of the archetypical, like, model for a mythological hero because he's based off um, Odysseus. You know, and so he yes. goes away at war. His whole life is war. And in this, like, you know, in certain contexts, in certain myths, you have Odysseus in the same way that Laviolus does not want to participate in war. But because he's so cunning and so, um, you know, he's so he's so full of guile. Uh, crafty, that's the word I was looking for, the crafty Odysseus, as Homer says. You know, he's he's had the decision made for him 
that he doesn't get to stay with his wife because he's a benefit to the army. He's co-opted by it. Yeah, and there's a difference between Cohen and Micah the troll, right? Because Cohen's like, you were in the war, right? And, you know, we did this, you know, because we, they were, we were told that there was a better world coming. And then Micah's like, well, I did it because there was a troll with a whip behind me. But sure, you know, there are different reasons why people join armies. Also, just going back to the Tolkien thing for a second, were they on the same side in the war? Like, Tolkien is very clear about, like, the species boundaries in Lord of the Rings. Like, there aren't trolls that are helping Gondor Rohan army, right? Like, trolls are evil or whatever. I I had that thought as I was reading the end of this where I was like, if this is supposed to be Lord of the Rings, are these two combatants, are these two old soldiers who are from opposite sides of this war talking to each other about the war? I kind of thought that as well because, like, you do fall into that kind of trap of preconceiving certain fantasy races as good or evil. And I know it's not explicitly tied to, like, racism, but that's just the way they've been coded in stories, especially because mm-hmm. of how big, like, Lord of the Rings was. And D&D tried to combat this with saying, you know, that there was no evil races. Although I'm pretty sure that was also in a response to um, the, the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matters movement in, in America, that that, was occasioned. So I think I perceived it as it, but it'd be really interesting if they were both on the same side and had such wildly different reasons for being in the war and wildly different expectations for what they were supposed to get out of it. See, I think it would be interesting if they weren't on the same side having this conversation now because it would imply that the other side wasn't perhaps as evil as... Yeah, they were or, made out to be. Noble. Well, yeah, or as noble. Talking about Cohen, like the idea is, is that even though like this troll was forced to be in this other army or whatever, they're both reasonable. Well, in air quotes, reasonable people, you know. And like it, it's just it's fascinating to me to think about that people who are the foot soldiers or the the you know the hordes or whatever are often closer to each other than the people who are in charge of armies are. Speaking of race, though, in fantasy, just a quick a quick shout out. Have you ever read the Dark Fantastic Race in the Imagination from Harry Potter to the Hunger Games by Ebony Elizabeth Thomas? Is that an academic book? Yes. No. I would highly recommend it. So the Dark okay. Fantastic, it is written in a way that is very accessible. It's not something that's like very intricate theory or anything like that. It's It's very accessible, very easy to read. Ebony Elizabeth Thomas is also a great follow on Twitter, especially if you're a Star Trek fan. But she talks a lot in that book about the legacy of Tolkien on fantasy and the ways in which, like you said, other creatures and just like the concept of dark races or darkness is highly tied to race. And the ways in which that that has left this legacy, even today in television and film and literature that relies on the fantasy distinctions, even the ones that try to undermine that still have that legacy. It's fascinating read. I would I would recommend to anyone listening to this. To Ebony Elizabeth Thomas's point, it's interesting in a bad way that the evil 
person is always like the Dark Lord, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she talks about that a lot. The idea of darkness being defined in opposition to lightness or lightness being defined in opposition to darkness. Like you need darkness in order to have light. Yeah, and in the Tolkien mo- mold as well, the the elves are, you know, they're the most perfect, beautiful beings and they're all associated with light. They all wear white, whatever. Mm. The orcs, who are the most horrible, twisted, ugly dark evil creatures are made by perverting you know that like that's the word they use by perverting the elves by taking and breaking and destroying them and making them less quote-unquote which is like when you stop and think about that for a second that's like you're like hold the fuck up there Tolkien. Yeah, it's it's a whole thing yeah if you think a lot I and I love Tolkien I want to make that very clear like I I have loved Tolkien since I was like 11 when I discovered Lord of the Rings. And, but I, the older I get, the more I'm like, you know, there is a lot of stuff that's just embedded in his work that has had this legacy that is not good. And I appreciate the fact that Pratchett at least is willing to ask questions about it. Probably not the same questions. Perfect. No. No. But he but, like, does seem no to be is. asking questions about like, well, why are why is this troll on the other side, or why is a troll a bad considered a bad race? You know, yeah, especially coupled then with the watchbooks, yes, which are with the which Tritus are tackling and... this, yeah, the same idea. So, just very briefly, there are no death sightings or sort references or footnotes, nothing at all in Trollbridge. I think this is the first Discworld text that doesn't have death in it, in some way. Hmm. Did anything make you laugh or think in Trollbridge? Not so much laugh. It wasn't really funny. Uh, it reminded me of Barry, though, the bit where, like, Cohen shows up and he says, he says to his horse, like, I'm here to kill a troll. And then... Micah is like, oh my god, look who it is, you know, and he's such a big fan of Cohen's and whatever. So it was like, you know, bleakly hilarious because I was I was like, oh god, is he going to have to kill Micah still? A point to his dead dad. Who kicked him out of the tribe when he was twelve. We yeah, find that to, out. To prove to him that like, you know, I'm your idea of a man. Um which reminded me of season one of Barry, which if you haven't seen, I won't spoil. You should watch it. The season three of it I is coming recommend. out. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. But you know what I'm on about in season one, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, no. Um, and then I suppose stuff that made me think, I think I've brought up before the fact that, like, they don't really know why they're fighting the war, really. They're just there. It reminds me of the, there's a Donovan song called Universal Soldier, which it talks about every single soldier as if it were one person, you know, and it's like, he, you know, he's fighting for all these different sides, but he doesn't really know why he's fighting. He just does what he's told. And if you take that out of the equation, then the killing can't go on. And then that's similar to, uh, oh, fuck, what's his name? Oh, Bertolt Breck. Um, there's a poem by Bertolt Brecht where he talks about the same kind of idea about the workers, you know, like, oh, did all of these buildings build themselves? Were all of these victories won 
by some great military leader. No, there was a whole bunch of soldiers who were just there and no one ever recognizes what they did or like, you know, why they were there. Yeah, I found that all to be also very thought provoking as well. I mean, I think that we've talked a lot about the main point of the story, which is very thought provoking, especially for anyone who's a Tolkien fan. I will say that the thing that made me laugh a little, like you said, there's not a lot of like jokes per se in this. But the thing that did make me laugh a little bit was when Micah says that his brother-in-law is selling Cut Shade Forest and Cohen is like, you can't sell Cut Shade Forest. It doesn't belong to anyone. And Micah says, well, that's why he thinks he can sell it. And because like Cut, the way that Cohen describes Cut Shade is very much like Mirkwood in The Hobbit. Yeah. I just had this image of someone trying to sell Mirkwood, and I thought that was very funny. I'm imagining that, like, Zillow listing. Is Zillow <laughs> a thing? You know, like, ancient forest, dark and evil, necromancer at the center, 12 bedrooms, three and a half bathrooms, seven million pounds. Somewhat of a pest problem. Somewhat of a pest problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got <laughs> you've got after crop after crop the spiders. <laughs> Let's talk about the main event, Lords and Ladies. And now the moment you've been waiting for. <laughs> Lords and Ladies is the fourteenth Discworld novel published in nineteen ninety two, so the same year as Trollbridge. It comes out directly after the events in Witches Abroad. And while you could read this novel on its own, and I actually did originally, this was the first witch novel that I read. I had to go back and read Weird Sisters and Witches Abroad out of order. Pratchett does include an author's preface reminding the audience of what happened in Weird Sisters and Witches Abroad because there are many references in the text to those events, even though they don't really impact what happens in the book as much as, say, the transition between Color of Magic and the Light Fantastic. Yeah. But short summary. Granny Weatherwax, Nanny Og, and Magrat Garlic return from their road trip and attempt to settle back into their roles. Granny and Nanny as witches and Magrat as the new queen-to-be of Linker. But as the wedding preparations continue and the guests begin to gather, strange omens begin to appear, heralding the invasion of a parasite universe. The lords and ladies are returning, and only Granny can stop them. What were your first thoughts on this novel, Nigel? Ah, uh, this is a great book. This is, this is a great little book. Grand old book. This has been a really interesting thing for me reading it this way, because even though we've read the first few books out of order, and I think this is the, actually the last book we're going to read out of order from Soul Music on, we're actually reading in publication order, but I had never actually sat down and read these the witches' books in order. So Weird Sisters, I'm not counting equal rights in this, but Weird Sisters, Witches Abroad, and then lords and ladies and i actually think there's somewhat of a structural trilogy that happens here and that's not to say that there aren't more books in the witches series there are but there's a lot of storylines that are introduced a lot of character development that's sort of hinted at in weird sisters that kind of comes to fruition 
here in Lords and Ladies in a way that I don't think I had noticed before because I hadn't read them in like this specific order. But before we get there, I have to ask, were you surprised? I know you've read the Tiffany Aching books before or a couple of the Tiffany Aching books before, but were you surprised that the elves were the villains of this story? Yeah, so we'll see, this is really interesting because this fits very much into like the Celtic view of fairies and elves. Mm-hmm. Like the Western conception and like Tolkien did a lot to further this is that elves are kind of these lovely, beautiful beings. But then when you get into Celtic stuff, and even there's kind of like analogs in you know, Eastern European traditions, like Polish, Ukrainian traditions. You see this in, like, you know, like, in the, in the world of the Witcher. They're really fucked up ethereal beings. So that's, like, I viewed the elves in, in Lords and Ladies as kind of, like, you know, the fae, they're the she, that kind of stuff, where they're, like, evil. Or if they're not evil, they're, you know, like, they're out for themselves, they're... Like, the Christian God is good, or he's supposed to be, but no one ever tries and imposes morals on the Greek gods, if that makes sense, because they don't make an attempt at being human. Like, these are entirely alien beings, Puck, kind of, Leprechaun, Clurakan, that kind of impish one, the, the Puka, the Taivsha. I was really, really happy to see that it was, like, scary elves. This is the this is the closest the Discworld has ever gotten to horror for me. Like, yeah, this scene where Margaret is trapped in the room, the elf is just outside of her room, and she's just going, "Lady, lady, lady." Uh, oh God, no, I didn't like that. Um, like I'm imagining it being, yeah, I'm imagining it just being like flat, toneless, the same, you know again and again. I actually wrote this is a slasher film because she like her running through the hall in the castle and the ways in which you know like at night when you're in a place that's that should be really familiar to you like your house or like a classroom or something like that but it's at night and like the moonlight like makes everything look alien and unfamiliar. Yeah. Like there that was the huge vibes of that when she was running through the castle from the elves and the way that they're like they're trying not to kill her because that would end the fun too soon. It it really felt like watching something like Halloween or Friday the 13th or something like that. Yeah. How would you describe the elves in this book if you were to say like what what makes them so scary? The elves, like, they're still beautiful in this book, but they're kind of, the only time Tolkien really touched on this, to, you know, bounce off the Tolkien model, is when Galadriel talks about this great and terrible beauty she would have if she were the Dark Queen, if if she, if Frodo gave her the the One Ring. And it's like that, Mm. it's this alien kind of beauty that you look on, and they talk about this later on in Lords and Ladies. Where it makes you, uh, you know, human, the correct place for a human in relation to an elf is kneeling. The correct thing to feel is ashamed. You know, it's so, it's such an otherworldly beauty. 
you know, like it's a weapon. And they're also just like really fucked up little dudes. I love them. As I was reading this book, I mean, part of it is that they all have like this like mindset of like serial killers. They want to take something apart to see how it works. They want to steal everything away. They want to hunt people and, you know, all these like really fucked up things. But I also Mm. think it's interesting the distinction between what the queen does and any other elves to a lesser extent and what granny does, because there's a lot of glamour juxtaposed with borrowing. This is a good book because it pits them against one another. Because like the glamour makes people believe that they're they look a certain way, that they're, you know the a lot of the times it seems to be that without the glamour the human mind couldn't comprehend the Fae. Uh and so this is like to make them at least somewhat acceptable to the human mind. But the glamour is also like and their powers, they take over human beings and possess them. Which, when you put that in contrast with Granny Weatherwax borrowing, I know she never, she's never done it with a human, but there are sentient minds, you know, that she's taking over, if for a while. The only thing with what Granny Weatherwax does is that they're alive at the end, and she tries to, like, take care of the animals she borrows. She leaves bowls and stuff out, uh, you know, and has food ready for the animals she's going to be vacating and whatever. She always describes borrowing as riding lightly on the mind of the animal as opposed to violating it, which seems to be like what the queen does, where she just drives the animal insane or the person insane. I don't think the queen sees a distinction between animals and people, which I that actually comes up explicitly in the book several times. We do see Granny actually sort of do this to one of the elves' horses in Elfland in order to escape, but she doesn't feel good about it, even then, because she, yeah, she sees what she does with the animals, the borrowing, as an exchange. Like, she gets to borrow. She says she doesn't leave anything that wasn't there before. And she always pays her debt to the animal that she borrows from. Whereas the queen just takes and takes. And the way the way this is done is interesting because you have two really similar methodologies, but two vastly different moral compasses and methods or, or like ways of utilizing that methodology. But they're like different enough in subtle ways and it's never drawn attention to explicitly. That you can like come to your own conclusion, you know, and it's not just a very obvious, oh, we're not so different, you and I, CGI punch up at the end of a Marvel film. Granny Weatherwax is like too similar to the Queen than she'd like to admit. Far, far, far too similar. Mm. I think, yeah, like Magrat, when she grows to hate Granny Weatherwax, I don't think she would see too much a difference in like how they go about. Because they're both like very, very domineering. But one cares about like, you know, and pays tribute to the people. And what like the elf queen just does not care. They're tools. Because this ties into the idea that we've touched on before, but that I think comes out really well in this book. This idea that witching or being a witch is about the community. It is about 
helping people to help themselves. Whereas what the queen wants to do is to rule and to take and to be sort of this parasite that exists on the land. Whereas Mm. granny just wants to tell the land what it is. Yeah. I mean, we get this explicitly in the duel between granny weatherwax and diamanta. Yes. You know, oh, yeah, you might have won the staring competition, but a true, like, a true witch wouldn't, wouldn't leave a crying child unattended. What did you think of that duel? I was like, okay, this is what they gotta do, and, but then I was like, oh, they're just staring at the sun? Okay. I thought it was very funny as well, like, when Magret was up in the castle and Sean came in and was like, there's a duel down in there, you know, and I think it's Cranny Weatherwax. I don't know where my mum is. Sean Ogg's character through the entirety of this book is, I don't know where my mom is, and then, oh, my mom is here, and, ow, mom. (laughs) Yeah, we get to see a little bit more of Nanny's children. So Jason and Sean specifically. We've seen Jason before, but he has even more of a role in this book than he did in previous books, and we get to see more of Sean. I really love the scene where Nanny is talking to... Jason and his friends at the beginning after they after she and Granny find the body of Scrope near the dancers and mm. she's talking to Jason and his friends and she's like oh Scrope is dead then she says so she's but she's to be allowed credit right talking about Scrope's widow so she's to be allowed credit right until she gets the farm on its feet said Nanny in the silence Quarney nodded mutely That goes for the rest of you men listening outside the door, said Nanny, raising her voice. Dropping a cut of meat on her doorstep once a week wouldn't come amiss, eh? And she'll probably want extra help come harvest. I know I can depend on you all. Now off you go. To me, Nanny and Granny, in a lot of ways, embody this basic force in the community that organizes the community. That says, like, this person needs help. I know that you'll help them, right? Yeah. That's sort of what the witches are, is that it is about power, but it is about just making sure that people do what's in their best interests for them. Yeah. And really investing in the community and really investing in empathy as a concept, which Nanny tells Casanuda that the queen doesn't have, right? She's like, it, she's missing the M word. And Casanuda's like, empathy? And she's like, yes. She doesn't understand that other people can have a point of view, let alone feelings. Uh, it's a nice parallel with um, Vimes in the next, you know, in the next book in Men at Arms, setting aside so much of his paycheck for the widows and orphans of, you know, former watch members, because he he's aware that there's no one there to do that. Whereas mm-hmm. Granny and Nanny know that the people within the Ram Tops you can appeal to their sense of like common decency. A common decency is a foreign concept, you know, to the vast majority of uh, residents of Ankh-Morpork. Pork. Mm-hmm. So he has to do it to himself. Like it's fallen to him to give a shit. Well, it's common decency, but it's also fear, right? Like the witches use both in order to organize mm. the community. Because yeah, like if you're not going to do the right thing, you are going to get a talking to by Granny Weatherwax, and nobody wants that, right? So there is, like, this 
sort of carrot and stick <laughs> method of witching that they employ. Headology. It's headology, right? I'm not sure they actually say the word headology in this book, but it's there in the background, what Nanny and Granny are doing to sort of corral the population into doing the right thing. When the young want-to-be witches show up at her door and she's like, take the hat off of my head and none of mm. them will use magic. And then Nanny knocks it off with a stick and they're like, but you never said we could. And it's like, well, I never said you couldn't not use magic. I like this idea of empathy and how the witches are there to remind people of their empathy and to remind them to do the right thing and to organize them into doing the right thing. But I like that Terry Pratchett makes the distinction between empathy and being nice. And we saw that in the last book when Granny was like so angry at Lily Weatherwax because she's like, I had to be the good one. And I wasn't really born to be the good one. Right. But I had to be. But that doesn't make me nice. We get to see that here, too. And uh, there's a really great thing where Granny is talking about borrowing and she says, but there was a price. No one asked you to pay it. But the very absence of demand was a moral obligation. You tended not to swat. You dug lightly. You fed the dog. You paid. You cared, not because it was kind or good, but because it was right. You left nothing but memories. You took nothing but experience. Even though that's specifically about borrowing, it's also just sort of her point of view on life. Like you do things because it's right, not because it's kind or good. And she's not nice about it. She has empathy, but she's not nice. A qualification for having empathy. She knows what what the end goal is. And she knows how to, like, what she needs to do to get there. And this is kind of like what forms a lot of the the conflict between her and Magret. Because Magret doesn't realize a lot of the time. Like, I mean, obviously, we all have those people, like parents or whatever, where they're like, this is the way things need to be done. And they're a bit domineering. But like, Mm -hmm. you know, like you said... Granny Weatherwax isn't a nice person, but she also knows implicitly what's right and what's wrong. So she's just going to do what gets there. She's not going to sugarcoat it. You know, if you're being a prick, she's going to tell you you're being a prick. And that's not to say Granny is perfect. She's not. But she can't be domineering. She can be narcissistic. We've talked about this before. But I think especially I don't know how it is in Irish culture or British culture, but in America, there's a lot of like there's a lot of people who are like, well, that's not nice. And so you're not a good person or whatever. And the whole point is, is that sometimes doing the right thing requires you not to be nice. Sometimes doing the empathetic thing requires you to not play the game as it has been set out. It requires you to not, you know, invest in the cultural capital of like uh, being nice is the right thing to say here because as a white woman that's generally what's associated most with like the performance of white femininity is like being nice and like being polite and you know performing it in that way and we know that white women especially in the U.S. can use that as a weapon against people of color and Mm -hmm. you know it It's something that I think is interesting to make that distinction, like being empathetic and being doing the right thing is not the same thing as performing niceness or performing the polite social conventions. Ireland is so like choked by the concept of niceness. Mm. 
I won't get into it here, but I will recommend listening to the April Fool's Day episode of Hyperfixations, where we did a whole episode on this topic. Or I haven't listened to it yet, but I can't wait. Yeah, April Fool's Day, someone comes on and talks about something they really, really hate. So Shay came on to talk about, like, niceness, <laughs> mainly within the co- or like the culture of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Being nice and being a certain way is very, like, restrictive in Ireland. And like white women in the U.S., the queen uses the idea of being nice or being beautiful or being perfect, like that glamour, she uses it as a weapon. Like, you can't, you can't possibly be good because you're not as nice as me or you're not as pretty as me or you're not as conventional as me, right? And so, like, that's a huge thing that Granny just doesn't have time for, right? She doesn't have time for the bullshit. You know, she's got actual work to do, as she would say. Yeah. There's a lot in this book about parallel universes and the multiverse, which is not a new concept to Discworld. In fact, Ponder Stibbins brings up the whole rubber sheet with the rocks on it. We've seen that metaphor before. But what did Mm. you think about the idea of the parasite universes like Elfland, Fairyland? Yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. Pratchett also like has a whole series about parallel worlds, the Long Earth series, and mm-hmm. some of them are like very, very bad. There's also a great podcast, like a fiction podcast about like separate worlds where like things have gone horribly wrong based off of like a small decision. Um, it's called Out of Place. It's very good. I like the phrase parasite universe, and obviously it comes from the Discworld, like. The whole trait of the whole thing in Discworld of like not hearing someone correctly and coming up with a new phrase like it's happened too many times. And I also appreciate the fact that continuum is a word like banana where everyone knows how to start spelling it, but no one knows when to (laughs) stop spelling it. That's very continuum thinking of you. Yeah. um, And the fact that they just keep putting quantum in front of everything that was in a previous book that was was that in moving pictures. Yes. Yeah, I, I like the phrase parasite universes because it's like, you know, it's leeching off of ours. Introducing the concept of like parallel universes in the popular consciousness of the disc world is interesting. I mean, putting it up against Ridcully, I think, is <laughs> just ridiculously funny. Like, which me? No, you. <laughs> That bastard wouldn't invite me to your wed- to the wedding, but it was your wedding. Yeah, I think the first person I'd think of was myself. Because he's so angry at the alternate Ridcollies for not inviting him to their wedding. I love the part mm. at the end where he's like, it's a billion to one chance. And Nanny's like, you do realize that that means that in, you know, 99... Uh, you know, hundred other universes, you die, right? And he was like, "Serves them right. Can't worry about them. They didn't even invite me to their wedding." <laughs> mm. But we finally got like an explanation for why million to one chances always seem to work in the Discworld and why they're important because of yes. like them always happening in parallel universes. Yeah, and the Discworld is a little closer to the magic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one of them has to come out right. Yeah, I never thought we would get, like, a proper in-universe. Like, when I say I never thought, I mean, like, it never occurred to me to think not. I didn't sit there going, 
God, we'll never get an explanation for that turn of phrase. But, you know, I, 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 it just never occurred to me that, like, the million to one chance thing would be a real, like, tied into the metaphysical workings of the Discworld. What did you think about the description of the multiverse in this book? What do you mean? The, uh, the like, coils that kind of, like, go in and twerk? Yeah. It's an innovation. I want, like, I mean, because most concepts of the multiverse kind of like have the most parallel sheets stacked on top of one another, mm-hmm. or the the recurring scene in science fiction where they're talking about wormholes and parallel universe travel, where they take the sheet of paper, fold it over, and punch through the same spot. You know, where it's always like these are on top of each other; they're flat. You know, like they're they're coterminous. But with Discworld, it's like. All of them are interconnected, but in so many, like, unique and naughty ways. This is not new, because obviously the villain of, or the the danger, I should say, not really the villain, of a lot of the books we've read so far has been the Dungeon Dimensions, which is in it of itself sort of a parasite universe, because the inhabitants of the Dungeon Dimensions, the things that exist there, want into the realness of the Discworld, right? They... They are attracted to the Discworld, which is why they're always a threat, right, of of coming through. Mm. But Fairyland or Elfland is a different kind of universe that also wants through. But I think that the elves and the queen are a much more... I don't know. I find her to be scarier than the things from the Dungeon Dimensions. Like, she's not as Lovecraftian, perhaps, but... That almost makes her more terrifying. I like the line where Red Cully is like, I miss the good old days when things were simple and all we had to worry about were things breaking in from the dungeon dimensions and not whatever the <laughs> fuck this is. <laughs> but like, again, to go back to the kind of like Celtic ties to the elves in this, like, I mean, I take monsters from Lovecraft any old day, like in fiction, you know, because they're kind of just like, you know, unknowable things, whereas... Spirits like that kind of like classical Dionysus as well had this with his mayonnaise and stuff where they were all too knowable, where they would drive you insane with like a glance. They would put curses on you that were awful, like the Queen says to Granny Weatherwax uh, later on or near the end of the book. That she's going to make her old and insane and people will look at her and go oh, there's the old insane woman begging for food, but I'll leave just enough of you close to the surface to know what's going on and to despair at everyone hating you. Like, that's the fucked up things that, like, you know, Celtic spirits and some Greek spirits and uh, presumably other spirits in other traditions that I'm not as familiar with. Um, I don't want to claim it's exclusively a Celtic thing. But that's what they do. Like, they're cruel and they're capricious just kind of for fun. But they make you love them. Like, that's the scary part to me. It's like they're capricious and they think everything's lesser than them and they take and take and take, but they make you love them. Like, we remember that they sang, but we forgot what they sang about. Yeah. It's really heartbreaking as well when the queen says that to Granny and Granny says, well, should they already say that anyway? They just don't think I can hear. Yeah, I think Granny also recognizes that what she and Nanny does for the community is a thankless job. She has way more social capital to do what she does than, say, Sam Bimes does, but it's still thankless. Nobody thanks the person 
who has to remind them to take care of other people. But she doesn't want that either, I don't think. Hmm. Well, I mean, like, to my point earlier about common decency being a foreign concept in Ankh-Morpork, if you're in a, um, a society where the default setting is lawlessness, is kind of like this very, very close to boiling over chaos, then no one's going to really bat an eyelid if someone doesn't behave morally. It's really interesting the way that this book really digs into that in a way that I don't think other books that we've seen with the witches so far has. Although we do get an interesting return to the whole, like, what is magic? Because just like with the million to one chance joke being tied to the parallel universes, we also get the witch definition of what magic is tied to parallel universes. Because we get this whole thing where it's like, what is magic? Well, the wizards would explain it as, and then it kind of goes into the more geometry side of, of magic. But then the witches, there's a scene where it says, there is the witch's explanation, which comes in two forms depending on the age of the witch. Older witches hardly put words to it, but may suspect in their hearts that the universe doesn't know what the hell is going on and consists of a zillion, trillion, billion possibilities and could become any one of them if a trained mind rigid with quantum certainty was inserted in the crack and twisted, that if you really had to make someone's hat explode, all you needed to do was twist into that universe where a large number of hat molecules all decided at the same time to bounce off in different directions. So we also get like this metaphysical explanation for the way that witches do magic, which seems to be almost borrowing from other universes, right? Like there is a universe somewhere in which Nanny's hat exploded and Granny Weatherwax, because she is so certain of who she is and where she is, is able to tap into that without destroying the fabric of reality. Mm. I also found the fact that Granny does more magic in this book than any other book that we've seen her in so far, like actual power magic to be fascinating. I enjoyed it. I didn't like really enjoy the fact that Magrat and um, Granny Weatherwax were at odds for the entire book, you know, and so they were ended up separated because this is a thing that keeps happening. So I think maybe that's why I didn't enjoy the book as much as other witches' books because it it felt like it was done before in Witches Abroad. And so they have like two very different views of magic and views of how to use power you know going back to how does a witch define magic it depends on the age of the witch asking the question and the age of the witch answering the question but like this is the the witch that like magrat never really gets to see because she's just like you know we've had magrat brings this up when they're arguing in witches abroad and diamanda brings this up in this book, you know, where she's just tricking people. But, like, she does have power. And we see her stand up to the queen, and she borrows a swarm of bees, which no one has ever done before, right? Which is really cool. Yeah, we've had that before in one of the previous books where it talks about, it talks about the fact that bees have a centralized mind. But also, like, fuck that ending for making me think Granny Weatherwax died. Fuck that ending. <laughs> 
I mean, like, I should know because she's alive in the Tiffany Aching books, but fuck that ending. Yeah, oh. I was in tears. I was like, she's dead. No, although she wasn't sure. Yeah. Because she thought that she died, but it turns out that she was seeing into parallel a parallel universe where she did die. But she wasn't sure. Mm. And that was interesting, too, the way that she was unsure of herself for like a good middle section of the book because she was starting to tune in to the other universes because they were getting closer. Because we've never seen Granny unsure of herself until she figures it out. Once she figures it out, she's sure of herself again. But she does go through a, a real like period of feeling a little lost and a little confused, which is unusual for her. Well, it's unusual for, I think, like, most magic practitioners mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that, like, all witches and all wizards know when they're going to die. Like, it's right. an appointed time. And so to take that away kind of, like, undermines her security in her knowledge that she's a witch in the same way that Rincewind wears his hat that says wizard on it. So people know who he is. I love the scene where Magrat puts the winged hat, the winged helmet on her head because she knows the power of hats. I love the, the power of yeah. hats in the Discworld. I appreciate that. I appreciate as well at the it was very hackneyed, but the fact that like, should we tell her the queen she never um existed? <laughs> nah. <laughs> it's it's good for her to feel represented, I feel like. Well, yeah, well, because it was all, it was all her then, and so it's a vindication that Magra can actually do stuff because the the internal monologues of Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og were like, oh sure, Magra. There's a line that Nanny thinks Magra would have probably, you know, danced, ended up dancing with the elves from the get go. You know, wouldn't have been able to resist them. And Sean has that as well, where it's like, oh, Magra can't handle herself, and then he has to be like. Well, she did also just shoot a crossbow bolt through a door lock into an elf's oh, eye. God. Okay, let's talk about Magrat, because, like I said, it fascinates me to think of Weird Sisters, Witches Abroad, and Lords and Ladies almost being like a Magrat trilogy, because after this, Magrat kind of steps back in terms of plot. She's not, she's still around, she's still there, she's just not a focal character the way she is in these three books. I like the idea that this is like a story arc. We see her grow from being this sort of romantic, kind of silly, younger witch into someone who can shoot a crossbow bolt or through, through a lock to kill an elf. Someone who can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the queen of the elves and live, mm. even with Granny's help. I think that's interesting because, like you said, there is that tension between Magrat and Granny, right? It's the young. There's a lot about the younger generation and the older generation in this book, and Varence and Magrat bond over that in a lot of ways. Like the idea that like we're trying to do something different, and none of these people want to listen to us. There's a line which I thought was really telling, where they're talking about like Magrat's capabilities, um, Granny at uh, Weatherwax and Nanny Og, where they're like, "Oh, sure, we taught her everything she knows." And then Nanny says, I mean, did you ever think that we should teach her everything we know? Like, at the same time, even though they're constantly saying these things about her to her and to each other about, like, oh, well, she she won't understand, she won't understand. 
they both clearly do respect her capabilities in their own way because one granny when she's writing her will leaves magrat the silver tea set which i don't think she would have done if she didn't care about magrat in some way like the only two people who are mentioned in that will are nanny and magrat nobody else like there's no other witches being mentioned no other people and then when diamanda is shot by the elves she takes her immediately to magrat and and it does say that granny thinks of magrat as being a better doctor the nanny, because she's like, I can't help her, but I know someone who can. There's a line, yeah, that line where it's like, Granny was a better witch because she looked at plants and like, oh, what is it? Hold on, I actually have this somewhere. Let me, okay, here it is. It was about the wit- the cottage of witches and how cottages of witches tended to attract certain types of personalities. So Magrat's cottage it was a cottage of questioning witches, research witches. I of what, Newt? What species of raven salt sea shark? It's all very well a potion calling for love and idleness, but which of the 37 common plants called by that name in various parts of the continent was actually meant? The reason that Granny Weatherwax was a better witch than Magrat was that she knew that in witchcraft, it didn't matter a damn which one it was, or even if it was a piece of grass. The reason that Magrat was a better doctor than Granny was that she thought that it did. Granny does have respect for Magrat and does actually care about Magrat in a lot of ways, or else she wouldn't have written the letter that she sends to Vernus from Ankh-Morpork. Yeah. But at the same time, she doesn't understand Magrat. Yeah, she doesn't understand Magrat. Magrat doesn't understand Granny. So there is that. But then we also get Magrat going through this thing where she's like, well, I'm not going to be a witch anymore. I'm going to be a queen. And you can't really do both. Right. And so she goes through this whole thing and she's incredibly bored. Right. She, I love how she was like, she'd never been bored as a witch. She'd been overworked. Sure. And miserable. Sure. But not bored. Then she sort of realizes that being a queen can sort of be what she wants it to be when she finds the the armor and is threatened by these elves. And so she kind of digs down. And we've seen it before. We've seen hints of this in her character before. We saw it in Witches Abroad when she like belts the the sisters of Cinder, right? Where it was like deep down inside, sometimes the furry animal turns out to be a mongoose. Yeah. But this is where we get to see that all come to fruition because she is a badass in these scenes against the elves. She rocks. Yeah. She doesn't take any shit. She doesn't. And I love that Grebo recognizes it too because Grebo is with her in the armory and like even Grebo thinks of her as a mouse. But then when he sees her putting on the armor, he like tries to hide. (laughs) Yeah. And then he gets trapped inside the armor. What did you think of the Schrodinger cat joke with Grebo in the box? I enjoyed that as a like continuation of the continuum jokes, but then also the fact that it's like very literally, you put a cat in a box and sealed it up, it's probably going to be very pissed when you let it out. Yeah, Grebo is, is around in this book. He doesn't have as central of a role as he did in Witches Abroad, but you know he always sleeps on Nanny's bed. I thought that was really cute. And uh, he's he's around. He savages an elf 
which I also thought that was really clever of Pratchett to have the elves have like the blue green blood because what makes human blood red is iron. And so obviously if elves are, Mm. are, can't be around iron, they wouldn't have iron in their blood. Although it also feels like a reference to Star Trek, which involves another race of pointy eared people that have green blood. So it's, you know, it's fun. Who's that? The Vulcans, like Spock, has oh. green blood, and he I has pointy ears. Blood. Oh yeah, the Vulcans do not have red blood; they have green blood. That's interesting, just because one of the theories people have for, um, like why vampires are, suck blood, it's because like they don't have any iron, mm, and they want uh, it, you know, and like yeah, they want it, like they they have this kind of like lust for it. Whereas the Fae fear it, revile it, um, are allergic to it. Magrat's a queen now. She's still a witch, but she's more of a queen than a witch now by the end of this book. What did you think about Granny's relationship with Ridcoli? Didn't care about it. Yeah? You didn't care that they like knew each other before and got married in a parallel universe? No. Like, Granny... Weatherwax and Nanny Og are one of the few people that in the Discworld that don't need, in my opinion, a romance arc. Like, there are some of them that, like, can have a romance arc, but because of how I, like, interact with romance arcs, I'd be like, oh, okay, like, I don't care about that. I feel like they don't. I really didn't care. Um, It was an important moment for Granny to like soften slightly at the end but ugh, i don't know i didn't care i really didn't care about casanunda and Naniog either i was just like please stop i love casanunda i think he's great casanunda is fine when he's not interacting with Naniog and being flirty like when he gets into the um carriage with ridcully and them that's yeah that's great i love him then you know they're playing cards, and they don't believe they don't believe that he's lying to them. That's great. Yeah, are you the world's? Are you really the world's most outrageous liar? No. Yeah. I see. I disagree, but I'm also more invested. I think in romantic storylines than you. I I really I didn't really care about the Ridcoli Granny stuff beyond the fact that I just I liked the interactions between their two characters because they're two very strong personalities. Yeah, it was definitely a better version of, and now I understand what you meant when you're you're talking about cut angle. Yes, I thought this was a much it was like better a precursor to. Yeah, yeah, you said then it was a precursor to Granny's um, relationship with a different wizard. Right, and I I appreciated this better, I think, and I really like that they both have these strong personalities, and they both do what they do around each other. In, in I, I like their interaction, but I'm not sure I'm completely sold on them as a romantic couple, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, yeah. I agree. Although it is interesting, the revelation at the end that she can control the unicorn because she's a virgin, which I think is interesting. I'm a, I'm of opinion that Granny Weatherwax is ace. That's always been my opinion of this character. But I mean, that doesn't mean that she can't have romantic feelings or anything. But to me, it just seems like she's very much not invested in sex. Like, she doesn't even think about the long man as an option in the way that Nanny Og does. Yeah. 
like it's interesting that both of them kind of have this view, both Rude Cully and Granny Weatherwax. That's what I like what I think is interesting about it. Is that both of them like had this relationship, but both of them believed that it wasn't going to work in some way or another. Mm-hmm. Probably much more Granny Weatherwax than Rid Cully. But then as well, the the revelation that she kept his letters, um, you know, and they're like, there's letters in here. And it's like, well, yeah, everyone gets letters, really. Yeah, it actually kind of reminded me of the scene from, have you seen the Greta Gerwig adaptation of Little Women that came out a couple years ago? No. With Timothy Chalamet and Saoirse Ronan? No. Okay, I highly recommend it. It is a very, very good adaptation of that. Because one of the big tensions in the original novel and in the film is between Joe wanting to be a writer and, you know, feeling all of this pressure about being a female writer in the U.S. at that time and kind of her need for companionship. And, you know, she her best her childhood best friend is in love with her and like proposes to her and she rejects him because she's like, I'm not in love with you and I have things I want to do which very much reminds me of Granny's reaction to Rid Cully, but she still wants that companionship with him and with her sisters. And there's this scene in the film where she says to her mom, like, you know, I don't want to marry him and I don't, I'm not in love with him and I'm not, you know, I'm not in love with anybody, but I do get really lonely sometimes. I'm so lonely sometimes. And that really reminds me of Granny Weatherwax in this book, like this idea where she's very fulfilled by her role as a witch. It's very much who she is. And I think that that's why it doesn't work with Rid Coley because she couldn't, I mean, not that witches can't get married, but she couldn't be married to him and have the same dedication to her work as she does in these books. But at the same time, I think she keeps his letters because she does like the idea that in a universe they got married and that she wasn't so lonely. You know, like, I think mm. she does get lonely, even though she would never admit it to anyone else. Yeah, it's also, like, slightly dangerous as well. Um, and they talk about this with, like, the hats earlier on. But, like, you know, th- that could happen to, uh, you know, it could lead to an, a- another event like what happened in Sorcery. Mm. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, this hat developed sentience and it's going to... You know, so that's why we have to change up the hats, and that's why Rid Cully's hat is the way it is. I loved Rid Cully's hat. <laughs> Rid Cully has a go- Inspector Gadget hat. It's great. I loved it. I loved it. I have a note here. Ask Nigel if she thinks sorcery would have happened on Rid Cully's watch. Uh, no. I don't think it would have. Like, Rid Cully... I like the way they describe Rid Cully's mind. It's like being a force of nature, but it's very difficult to like direct to other places because it's like a speeding train. Mm-hmm. So it just follows the tracks that it's in. But I feel like he wouldn't have let sorcery happen. I also appreciate the fact that they address the fact that Galder Weatherwax was a thing and was mm-hmm. a chair. And Granny Weatherwax is like, oh, yeah, it must have been a, a distant we- um, relative. Never met him. Yeah, never met him. 
I feel like eventually, like, first of all, Reed Cully wouldn't have let the hat get separated. Reed Cully wouldn't have died. Reed Cully probably would have come round to the idea that Coin is a child. If the child showed up, he would have been like, what is a child doing here? Right. <laughs> Someone please tend to this child. Right. I don't think he would have either. And I like that he is just like, like, they're like, oh, well, the Archchancellor's hat. And he's like, no, I'm not doing that bullshit. I'm making my own hat. Like, I don't think he. Yeah, it's got to have alcohol in it. <laughs> I like that you can make it into a tent. Yeah. Oh, my God. I. Yeah. To me, his personality is so antithetical to the way that wizardry was being done at Unseen University previously. Like, we do get references to it because he's because when Granny asks him, like, how does he survive? He says, oh, well, you know, I always make sure someone else has eaten, you know, some of the food that I've had. And I always make sure that like my, you know, I check under the bed every night or whatever. So like, it's still something that's of a concern to him. Like he understands the way that the university was before he became arch chancellor, but his like force of nature personality has irrevocably changed unseen university in the sense that he does not let that bullshit happen. Yeah. It's a really good comparison to the way Galder Weatherwax, for the most part, like avoids assassination attempts in Color of Magic into Light Fantastic. You know, where he says, you know, to beat me, you'd have to, uh, you'd have to get up that early that you'd be you'd have to stay awake the night before. Mm-hmm. But Reed Cully is like, I don't know, genetically disposed to that kind of thing. If that makes sense. Yeah, it's just so fascinating to me how the Unseen University changes between those books to this book. He does mention another Arch-Chancellor, which I think is funny. He mentions Arch-Chancellor Spold, who is not an Arch-Chancellor that we have seen in any of the books. But he does say, like, Arch-Chancellor Spold was in charge when I was a student, and he would have never stood for the Ponder Stivens academia style of wizardry, which I thought was also very funny. Yeah, so hold on now. What's, let, let's get the complete list now of all the arch chanters we've heard about. So there's Spald, Cut Angle, Wazy Goose, Weatherwax, Rid Cully. Erzolith Churn. We do get a lot in this with the Librarian, Ponder, Stibbins, and the Burser. What did you think about the three of them stumbling around Lanker? I was going to say I really enjoyed Mustrum. Rid Cully and the Burser as another like sitcom slash rom com pairing. <laughs> He's just constantly yelling Burser. Like in the Unseen University, like just before they get the invitation to Varence and Magrat's wedding, where they're like, where it's like, oh yeah, the Burser was asleep up until the point, which would be when Rid Cully shouted for him and it'd be like, Burser! Burser! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the frog, the dried frog pills. By the way, what I are kinda, dried frog pills? I want to take some of these dried frog pills. Like, if they're going to help with anxiety the way that they apparently do with the burser, like, I want some. Yeah, unless you take too many and end up just gabbling nonsense for the rest <laughs> of the book. I loved how Sean Og is totally unfazed by the librarian. Like, he's just like, yeah. well, my mom says nobody can help how they are. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, it's an ape. Yep. And they're like, don't you think that's odd? 
Nope. Nope, not at all. I also really like the continuation of... We saw in moving pictures that the librarian really loves performance art. So he loves yeah. like watching films. So I also like the idea that he loves plays, that he loves going to plays. Yeah. But he, he wants slapstick comedy even in his tragedies, which feels very Shakespeare. I think that's very funny. Yeah. And we haven't talked about the Shakespeare elements of this, and maybe this is a good place to do it. Because this is clearly loosely based on Midsummer's Night Dream in the same way that Weird Sisters is loosely based on Macbeth. But even in tragedies like Macbeth, you get these weird, like humorous interludes. Like there's this whole scene in Macbeth that's supposed to be a funny exchange between like a knight. Oh, the knock-knock jokes? Yeah, the knock-knock yeah. jokes. And it's like, this is a dark, bleak play, but we had to stop for like... A 10-minute scene about knock-knock jokes. And so I loved that sort of moment where they're like, the, what is it? The, it's a footnote. Stick and bucket dance? Oh, no, the stick and bucket dance is funny. Oh, you know, I found it. Here it is. The footnote where it's like, the librarian, an ape of simple but firmly held tastes, considered an episode with custard pies, buckets of whitewash, and especially that bit where someone takes someone else's hat off, fills it with something oozy, and replaces it on the deadpan head, while the orchestra plays wah, 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 to be an absolute essential part of any theatrical performance. Since a roast peanut is a dangerous and painful item when hurled with pinpoint accuracy, the directors in Ankh-Morpork had long ago taken the hint. This made some of the, the grand guiganol melodramas a little unusual, but it was considered that plays like the blood-soaked tragedy of the mad monk of Quirm with custard pie scene we're far better than being deaf in one ear for five days. Mm. I thought it was a good juxtaposition between, you know, like obviously because Midsummer Night's Dream, a lot of it is occasioned by Puck, who's a very mischievous fairy, you know, and they've got like the scene with the horse's head and stuff. And that's very much like, it, like it's a fun kind of comedy play. Whereas this is like scary fairies. This rests on a lot of, like, perceptions of elves and fairies. And obviously you've got Tolkien, you've got Shakespeare. It also references one of my favorite poems. Which they're singing later on. Fairies by William Allingham. Which starts off as, like, this lovely kind of lovely fairy poem where they're all so cute and stuff. And then it rapidly gets more and more sinister. Would you like to hear it? Yes. Up the airy mountain, down the rushy glen, we daren't go a-hunting for fear of little men. We folk, good folk, trooping all together, green jacket, red cap, and white owl's feather. Down along the rocky shore, some make their home. They live on crispy pancakes of yellow-tide foam. Some in the reeds of the black mountain lake, with frogs for their watchdogs, all night awake. High on the hilltop, the old king sits. He is now so old and grey, he has nigh lost his wits. With the bridge of, mi- of white mist, column kill he crosses, on his stately journeys from Sleeve League to Rosses, or going up with the music on cold starry nights to sup with the queen of the gay northern lights. They stole little Bridget for seven years long. When she came down again, her friends were all gone. They took her lightly back between the night and morrow, they thought that she was fast asleep, but she was dead with sorrow. 
They have kept her ever since, deep within the lake, on a bed of fig leaves, watching till she wake. By the craggy hillside, through the mosses bare, they have planted thorn trees for my pleasure here and there. Is any man so daring as dig them up in spite, he shall find their sharpest thorns in his bed at night. Up the airy mountain, down the rushy glen, we daren't go a-hunting for fear of little men. We folk, good folk, trooping all together. Green jacket, red cap, and white owl's feather. Elves are bad. Elves are bad. You do not want elves there. I think this brings up a really interesting point, though, about the other main theme of this text, which I think is cultural trauma. This idea that yeah. like trauma can be experienced by a society in ways that echo down through generations. So even if it gets detached from its original meaning, you still remember the bad things that have happened, right? All the rhymes and the nursery rhymes and the putting milk out and the nailing the horseshoe to the door, all of those like little mm. things. And Nanny Og gets it absolutely right. I love this moment in the book where she confronts the king who is supposed to be Oberon, right? Like they never name the queen and the king in this, but it's Titania and Oberon, which is the, the characters from Midsummer Night Dream. But yeah, when the king says, nevertheless, even that one day, one day, Nanny nodded. Yes, I'll drink to that. One day. Who knows? One day. Everyone needs one day, but it ain't today. Do you see? So you come on out and balance things out. Otherwise, this is what I'll do. I'll get them to dig into the long man with iron shovels, you see. And they'll say, why, it's just an old earthworks and pensioned off wizards and priests with nothing better to do. We'll pick over the heaps and write dull old books about burial traditions and such like. And that'll be another iron nail in your coffin. And I'd be a bit sorry about that because you know I've always had a soft spot for you. But I've got kitties, you see, and they don't hide under the stairs because they're frit of the thunder, and they don't put milk out for the elves, and they don't hurry home because of the night, and before we go back to them dark old ways, I'll see you nailed. I think that's really interesting because neither Nanny Og nor Granny Weatherwax were alive the first time that the elves came. Hmm. But they remember, because all of this information's been passed from witch to witch, from grandmother to grandchild... It says that there used to be a lot more witches because too many women came home to find an empty cradle or their husbands never came home, right, from being hunted by the elves. And so, like, clearly this was a terrible time to be a human, to be in Lanker. And this book is really interested in that cultural memory, like the idea of we weren't there the first time, but we're not going back. We'll never go back to that. The interesting way in which a lot of the humans have forgotten, but like the dwarves and the trolls haven't, and the bees haven't. Yeah, I mean, cultural trauma is kind of a thing that, like, especially in Ireland, we're dealing a lot with. There's Mm. a lot of cultural trauma, especially with, a lot of it is religious trauma, but a lot of it is also to do with um, the fact that we were colonized by England. And we're kind of like post-colonial in a way that America never really got to be. Like America broke free and it, it declared its independence and it was its own nation. Whereas like Ireland was there for way, way longer under um, England's thumb and only more recently did it get out. And so then it had to deal with like being post-colonial in a modern age. And obviously we're not nearly as bad as, you know, countries in Africa and like India and uh, Egypt, you know. Mm-hmm. 
but still that's like a lot that we have to deal with especially with things like the mother and baby homes the magdalene laundries all of that so like it did hit a bit close to home and i feel really bad being like this is where this is where i like associated my my quote for the episode from the mountain goats yeah so you were cool is this song that was never released you can only hear it at like as like demos and sometimes he plays it live but it's not on any album or or tape or whatever and it's kind of to do with like being sad about the past and never really getting given a chance they say it's good to be young but let's not kid ourselves it's better to pass on through those years and come out the other side with our hearts still beating having stared down demons and come back breathing then verse three is always it's really a kicker to me uh you deserve better than you got someone's got to say it sometime because it's true people should have told you you were awesome instead of taking advantage of you i hope you love your life now like i love mine I hope the painful memories only flex their power over you a little of the time. We held on to hope of better days coming, and when we did, we were right. I hope the people who did you wrong have trouble sleeping at night. And that kind of, that like, hoping that better days are coming, uh, but like still having to live with the painful memories and stuff. Um, Yeah. The, the, the Mountain Goat song, The Prowl Get Great Cane also deals with that. You know, I feel guilty but I can't feel ashamed. And then later on it says, um, sometimes a great wave of forgetfulness rises up and blesses me. And other times the sickness howls and I despair of any remedy. Yeah. I think it's interesting that in this book too, they explore the idea that songs like that and like, especially folk songs, folklore, like there's this idea that people laugh at it. Like it's an old wives tale or whatever, but like, just because it's, like enshrined in rhyme and poetry and stuff doesn't mean it's not true. It's like a way of passing that information, those warnings down. So I I found that to be interesting that it's like art can be this place where we store that kind of trauma, right? That way of saying like, we're not going back again. Don't let it back again. Right. Like calling them the dancers, those stones as a way of warning people I like that it's called answers, you know, as a warning. I, I thought that was a nice touch. And the fact that it's like, you know, we shouldn't really say the actual word elve out loud. And then the way that it's connected with like bees and the way that bees have this memory that goes on for a long time that's passed down from bee to bee, basically. It's sort of in their yeah. genetics. Well, I don't know. Bees are just a symbol of, of um, wisdom. Uh, and like sagacity there's even a latin phrase um cis apis cis apis which is if you wish to be wise be a bee i also really love the character of mr brooks <laughs> yeah mr brooks is great he falls into that kind of mold of like really weird like like hodges ah what's the name of the universe the unseen university gardener moto moto yeah 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 or they're just like funky little people doing their jobs and they're really good at it. And that's like defines their sense of satisfaction and happiness and identity. So Hodges are hold on. I got to find this because it's I want to make sure I get it right. He's actually based on a real person. Oh, hold on. Let me find it. OK, yeah. Hodges Arg is based on Dave Hodges, who was a UK fan who ran the project The Real Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which was a c- computer database 
in the style of Douglas Adams. Um, and he would take his guide along with him to science fiction conventions and events. And he would like auction off printed versions of it in order to raise money for charity. So this is where Terry Pratchett met him. But mm. one of the entries in the guide that he wrote concerns a computer virus called Terry, which it says autographs all the files on the disk as well as any nearby manuals. So it was kind of a poke at Terry Pratchett. But in real life, he, Hodges, worked for a firm that kept birds away from airports and other places, like where you can't just have birds flying around because they could like mess with the plane. So to this purpose, he would use a falcon called Lady Jane, who bites people all the time, which gave Terry the idea for the character Hodges Arg. I like that. But yeah, I mean, it goes back into what we were talking about in previous books about Mr. Brooks especially fits into this mold of character that takes a lot of personal satisfaction from their job. He gets a lot of satisfaction for, the, for taking care of these bees. He knows everything about bees, right? He protects them from the wasps. I love the scene where he goes up against the elves who are destroying like that hive. And then that, just that scene at the end where he's putting the hive back together again, despite being stung by the bees. I think that that's a beautiful little scene because like, he doesn't care what's happening in the rest of the kingdom. That's not his problem, right? It's not his job to worry about that. That's Magrat and Vernus's job. His job is to worry about the bees. And it just really reminded me of like stuff like Reaper Man or, like you said, Modo or characters from The Watch who are very invested in their jobs, like Veterinari, especially. Like all of these characters in the books that are just like very focused on what they do. And that's who they are. There's a line I really like where the elf is looking at all of the hawks that Hajazar has. You know, and he tells it to kill. And you think, <laughs> oh, that it's going to kill him, and he bites it. But just slightly before that, you have this line where it's like, Hajazar, like Mr. Brooks, didn't really care about what was going on and was only interested in one thing. And when that thing was threatened, then he'd take an interest. You know? Mm-hmm. Which I, I, I don't know, I appreciate. I also just love how hilarious it is. The fact that the elf thought he was really going to win there by telling it to kill. And then it's like, yeah, no. And I like how Hodges apologizes. Like, oh, sorry, she does that sometimes. Mm. <laughs> oh, she's just like that sometimes. Speaking of people who take their jobs very seriously, let's talk about Varen's, who we haven't seen since Weird Sisters, right? Like, we didn't see him in Witches Abroad. I enjoyed Varen's in this. I thought he was quite good. He's surprisingly adept at ruling a kingdom. But again, they do point out that it's kind of like a thankless job, like the witches at one point. I thought it was heartbreaking that he sleeps on the floor and not in his bed because he's so used to that. Well, and I love what it says. It's not just that he's used to it. It's that to him, the kingdom is his master now. So he Mm. sleeps outside the door of his master, which is inside the door of his bedroom yeah and it's very much like going to Karish and um vimes's rooms in men in arms which i know is a one book later in the chronology of the series or release order of the series and like learning a lot about them there and how the room reflects like this mindset of the of the individual right and i love that that varence has 
the flower from Magrat's hair on the mirror. I, I think that the thing about their relationship is that they truly love each other. And a lot of this book is them negotiating what their life together will be like. Because Varence knows that she hates being queen or like the idea of being queen because it's so boring or the way that she thinks being a queen is at the beginning of the book because she thinks it's so boring. But he doesn't know what else to do because like he's king and he didn't choose to be king, right? Like he was sort of given this kingdom and but, you know, he wants to marry her. And like, that's what happens when you marry a king is you become a queen. And then from her like perspective, except for when she gets angry at him because of the letter later, she's very much of the opinion of, well, of course, we're going to get married. Like, we love each other. But I loved him better when he was, you know, the fool with the bells and all of that. And then when she discovers that she's, he's still that person, that's when it seems like things are going to get better for the two of them. Like, they're both just going to figure out how to do this relationship together and how to like make the roles that they've been given work yeah because neither of them are actually royalty like varence is not is not royalty they just as they point out in as pratchett points out in his introduction it's just he's just someone who nanny og and granny weatherx thinks would be the right person for the job so he went from fool to being king and now magrat has to go from witch to being queen so like both of them are kind of living in a life that isn't really theirs. And they both have to come to terms with that and the fact that, like, they want to get married. There would be so much pressure if they were both still a witch and a fool. And I thought it was really cool that when they do get married at the end, because Midsummer's Night Dream is a comedy and you have to have marriage at the end of comedies. I love that they get married where she's in her armor with the wedding dress, like in shreds around it. And then he's in the fool's costume. I thought that was just perfect. Yeah. To me, it just illustrated who they actually were and who they intended to be. Yeah, that's a nice encapsulation of like who they are together. I also think it's interesting because he's clearly good at this, but he doesn't make the kingdom work in the same way that Vetinari does, mainly because I think Lanker already does work. In yeah. a lot of ways, because of the witches. Like, I, I often wonder what Ong Morpork would be like if they had witches in the same way that Lanker does. Like, I don't know how Vetinari and the witches would get along, or if they would get along. Because Varen serves a really important purpose, and he is trying to make the kingdom better. But it's interesting the ways in which he will patiently explain what he's trying to do to the people. And the people will just sort of nod and smile and then go do the thing that they were already doing. Yeah. And like part of that is because of the witches. The witches already have this community organized in a way that works. And in fact, we get to see that at the end when Varence is crowning Magra and he looks at Granny Weatherwax before he puts the crown on her head. So it is very obvious that the witches are really the ones sort of in charge here. But at the same time, Granny has made it very clear over the last couple of books that riches, that witches can't actually rule. They can organize, but they can't wield the power that a king wields. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm not sure whether it's a question of what would happen if Ankh-Morpork had witches so much as like, what if Ankh-Morpork had kings, which is a problem mm. that they're dealing yeah. with. And because like, 
I think if you put a witch into Ankh-Morpork, it wouldn't really work because they'd spend so long trying to do... Like, Vedinari, I think, functions the same as a witch, where he knows what's best to the for the city, but he doesn't like doing his job. Like, he's very like Granny Weatherwax in the sense that, like, he's mm. forced to be the good one. And he knows who he is. Yeah. In the same way that Granny Weatherwax does. Although he doesn't wield magic. Yeah, I mean, Venonari also doesn't have any siblings, though, does he? I don't know. No evil... No, no evil ones just hiding there? He seems like an only child to me. Maybe Vorbis actually is his brother. <laughs> <laughs> his long-lost brother. Yeah, got really into religious fanaticism. Uh, well, no wonder he doesn't talk about him. I, I think... Like, that they serve the same purpose, the patrician and the witch, as a role. Like, I think they serve kind of a similar purpose. No, yeah, no, because, like, the witches effectively rule Lanker and the Ram Tops. And so it's like, nowhere really benefits from the rule of a king without some kind of outside interference. Right. It's just interesting, I think, to compare the two because Ankh-Morpork, because Vetinari, Carrot, and Vimes are so adamant that Ankh-Morpork doesn't need a king, that every time Ankh-Morpork has tried having a king, it just, everything just goes to shit, right? Yeah. And the only way that Ankh-Morpork really has ever prospered is under someone like Vetinari. But Lanker is a completely different place, not just because it's a much smaller, more rural community, but it also just has a different way of working. Like, they need a king. That is something that came up in Weird Sisters, right? You have to have someone fill that role in Lanker to balance out the witches, who are the ones who are actually in the community organizing things and making sure that everything goes the way that it should. And in this community, there's so much cultural tradition that's passed from person to person that that also reinforces a system that works for Lanker. So it's almost like Pratchett is trying to say different places, different cultures need to find what works for them, that there's not a one-size-fits-all. And that actually is supported because Varence tries to introduce a Fievan democracy to Lanker, mm. and it doesn't go very well. I like the idea of him just sending off for books about everything. Yeah. I think that's sweet. Although the librarian is not very impressed. No. I mean, who would be after Unseen University's library? Yeah, exactly. I'd like to return just very briefly to the Midsummer Night Dream of it all, because I just wanted to point out that I really enjoyed the way that this echoes how terrifying Midsummer Night Dream would actually be. Because if you think about that play... Most of that play are people stumbling through the woods with terrible tricks being played on them by Puck. Yeah. And that's terrifying. Like, honestly, that's terrifying. And I liked how this book, like, inverts that a little bit because the last third of the book really is all of these characters stumbling through the woods, having to, like, make decisions and fight off elves, etc., Although I do like that the librarian has just, like, no time for the elves at all. Yeah, he's over it. But yeah, I, I appreciated that aspect, where it's like, yeah, we're going to do the stumbling through the woods, and then they emphasize that by saying, and then they awoke, and it seemed like a dream, which is very much the ending of Midsummer Night's Dream. 
But the idea is, is that it's a terrifying dream. Like, that was not a good dream. A lot of fairy tales are like that, or like the way things are described in fairy stories are, it's like, when you stop and consider it, it's very terrifying. What did you think about the play within the play? So, Huel writes a play and sends it from Ankh-Morpork to be performed as the entertainment, capital E, at the wedding. And Jason Ogg and various members of the Linker community get together to perform this play, which is supposed to be very much a reference to Bottom and the the rude mechanicals of Midsummer Night Dream. I was a bit disappointed that Huel didn't show up himself. Yeah. Well, he came the next day. Yeah. That's in the last footnote. I know, but, like, I wish he showed up in the main text. Like, it would have, especially... As you say, this is meant to be like a, a complete trilogy, nearly, the way it feels. It would right. have not been nice if he had played a major part in it. Mm-hmm. You know, especially because it, it, it it's the closing of it all. Um, that whole plot line, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about it. I appreciate that it ended up being co-opted into summoning the elves like like that was the final straw i i liked that part i liked the whole like carter the baker thatcher the weaver that was all very funny to me and the way that they were like making fun of the play in terms of well it's not very funny is it well it's a play you're not supposed to laugh (laughs) like all of that I found very funny. But that's I think that's probably the closest to the Midsummer Night Dream aspect of it. What were those particular characters and what was happening with them? I did like the idea of a of a folk dance as a weapon or as a martial combat. We don't talk about the stick and bucket dance is probably one of my favorite lines from this. Yeah. <laughs> I don't ever want to hear about the stick and bucket dance again. two things to mention before well three things really before we get to our wrap up the first is is that unlike you i actually really like the casanunda nanny og ship pairing here mainly because again i don't feel like we see a lot of romances with elderly people in them and so the fact that casanunda finds nanny og like irresistible i think is great especially because she's described as someone who would conventionally be considered past her prime Right. Like the idea is that she had a lot of love affairs in her youth, but now like she's older and she's a mom and she's a grandmother. And, you know, that's generally when we think of romance as being over. But the idea that somebody is really interested in her, finds her fascinating, like wines and dines her, like tries to seduce her, even though she's like doesn't understand that part of it very much because she's so straightforward and has like a mind like an arrow. Like Mm. all of that I found really fun from a perspective of someone who does like romances. Yeah. Like I'm not saying that there shouldn't be romance stories featuring elderly people. It's just that like, I don't want to read them. I mean, and that's completely fair. I understand. I do want to read them. So I would, I would like to read them, but I understand why you wouldn't want to read them. The other thing I find was interesting, and I didn't really think about this connection between Lords and Ladies and Trollbridge until we started talking about Trollbridge. 
But I like the idea. They keep talking about how the elves ultimately would not be successful in coming back to the disc world because there are too many people that have iron in the mind. This comes up several times, the idea of iron in the mind. And I Mm. think it's actually sort of related to what we were talking about in Trollbridge, the idea that as the Discworld becomes more urban, as they become, it becomes more populated, as these ancient places of magic become more, uh, either are destroyed or are commercialized or whatever in some way, this creates uh, a way in which this this changes the way people think, right? We talk about how like in Europe when the enlightenment happened, there was a paradigm shift. People before the enlightenment fundamentally did not see the world the same way as people after the enlightenment, right? It has completely changed the way that people think about things. And that's true for like uh the industrial age as well. And so the idea I think of, well people have iron in their mind now, I think is supposed to indicate a paradigm shift. Right. The elves can't control people in the same way that they used to because people fundamentally don't think about elves in the way that they used to. I enjoyed that, but I also read it like I I read it that way. And then also like uh, in a more literal sense as well, like they have iron in their mind, you know, they're thinking towards this industrial future. You know, nearly like mm-hmm. a slave at its behest. I think both of them are really, really interesting readings, especially given, like, I'm thinking specifically of things in, like, The Light Fantastic with the death of the mind and the religious fanaticism in Small Gods and stuff. Like, both of those are iron of the mind, but for the wrong reasons. I think for me, it's more neutral morally. Like, it can be bad, but it can also be good yeah. at the same time. Well, a sword a sword is bad or good. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure. Right. The dis- didn't Discworld have something like this, where it's like a sword isn't bad or good? And I know the Ghana- It just is. Yeah, the Ghana echoes it in Men at Arms. Cohen is very sad about the industrialization of the Discworld, but there are ways in which it's also a protection against beings like the Queen- it is that paradigm shift that allows them to resist the type of paranoia, the type of mind control, the type of glamour that the queen has, because it fundamentally doesn't believe in the same paradigm that the queen belongs to. And yeah. and Nanny echoes it in the thing I read earlier when she says, I'll get them to come with iron shovels and they'll they'll treat this place like an archaeological dig, which is a different paradigm than treating it like it's a magical place of masculinity. Mm. So there are several cameos in this. We do get a, a several references to Huel, who writes the play, but he also shows up the next day and writes another play called The Taming of the Vole, which is very Shakespearean. Yes. And uh, Tom John also can't make it because they're very busy touring the... With the troop, I guess. So we get that that cameo. Did you notice that Carrot's dad is mentioned a couple of times in yeah. this? Um, Chief Ar- Iron Founder, yeah. Yeah, Iron Founderson is is mentioned several times, especially when they capture the the elf and they're like, we could just give him a call. He'll come take it off our hands because the dwarves have longer memories than humans do. 
We also get a reference to the Sunshine Sanctuary for Sick Dragons, which is Sybil's, Sybil's house. Yeah, Sybil's house, Sybil's Sanctuary for Six Dragons. That's mentioned in a footnote. So yeah, we get a few of those cameos of different people. I'm trying to remember. Oh, Mr. Ixalite is also mentioned. Yeah, he's the only person who's not a witch who'd be flying in the ram tops. Right, and he usually leaves a note mm. to make sure. Yeah, the most polite banshee. All right. Were there was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we got into the wrap up? Yeah, I I, I just really enjoyed the scene at the start where Jason is shooing the horse and how yeah, it's that our taps death into, Yeah, which yeah. So I'm doing it now as like a nice little segue. I like, but I like how that taps into folk beliefs, you know, and stuff. It's like this is what you need to do. You need to take the shoe. You need to take the shoes off. Don't do that with anything else. You got to take the shoes. You got to have a separate thing. Heat the thing up. Smelt the shoes yourself. Get rid of them. Then you use the metal from that smelting to make the new shoes. And when he he talks to Death and he's like, "What would I see if I took off that mask?" And he's like, "Do you have faith, Jason Og?" I think it's really great that Jason Og shoes Binky. Mm. Like he is the official blacksmith for Death. I also thought it was great. It is our only death sighting is at the very beginning where he sits and has cookies he, or biscuits while doesn't death, he appear to sure. um the hunter guy where he talks about how he's the he picks up oh, undiscovered yeah. um trifles. That's right. I for some reason didn't have that one written down, but you are absolutely right. There is a second death sighting when he's talking to Scrope. Yeah, After and then in the footnote slightly later on, when Nanny Og takes the, the desserts out of her hat, she's also a picker up of um, lost <laughs> trifles. I still like that Death is trying out his jokes. We saw that in in some of the others where he's like, "People say that I want I should make this experience more enjoyable," and I like that he's still he's still trying. He doesn't get it right, but he's trying. Oh, but uh, to back to your point, though, Nannyog does use the horseshoe that Jason made of the metal that he took from Binky. She uses it as a way to bring iron past the the guards on the king's domain. Yeah. Because she says, I brought this iron goes anywhere because it's the idea that death, if death can go anywhere, then the iron needs to be able to go anywhere. Hmm. That's so cool. Yeah, that, I, I don't know. Just as a concept in fantasy, that's so fucking cool. Granny knows about it. And Nanny knows about it. Because N- Jason at the end looks at Nanny and, and Granny's like, she didn't tell me, but y- if you can shoe anything, it means that you have to be able to shoe anything. And so obviously that's death. There are no references to sort in this book. Sad. The first footnote of this book happens on the very first page. There are very few starts. Oh, some things seem to be beginnings. The curtain goes up. The first pawn moves. The first shot is fired. Footnote. Probably at the first pawn. But that's not the start. So, first footnote. I thought that was quite funny, actually. Probably at the first pawn. This book has a lot, like, a lot of really good footnotes. Like, 
I think, like, in terms of Batman average, this is quite high in terms of the quality of the footnotes. <laughs> Did you have a favorite? Yeah, um, it's the one about um, <laughs> bestiality Carter. I love that one. Well, it's like this. The Carter parents were a quiet and respectable Lanker family who got into a bit of a mix-up when it came to naming their children. First, they had four daughters who were christened Hope, Chastity, Prudence, and Charity because naming girls after virtues is an ancient and unremarkable tradition. Then their first son was born, and out of some misplaced idea about how this naming business was done, he was called Anger Carter, followed later by Jealousy Carter, Bestiality Carter, and Covetousness Carter. Life being what it is, turned out to be depressive. Chastity uh, was enjoying life as a lady of negotiable affection in Ankh-Morpork. Pork. Prudence had 13 children, and Charity expected to get a dollar's change out of 75 pence. Whereas the boys had grown into amiable, well-tempered men, and bestiality Carter was, for example, very kind to animals. Bestiality Carter is one of my favorite names from the Discworld. Mm. Every single time I laugh. Yeah, it's very, it's very much like "Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live." Pulsifer from Good Omens. <laughs> I forgot about that. That is absolutely true. My favorite footnote is the one where they're talking about the younger wizard's explanation of what magic is, and they mention the high-energy magic building, which is where Ponder Stibbins does most of his postgraduate work. And it's where Gaspo got his voice back. Yes, exactly. Younger wizards, particularly the pale ones who spend most of their time in the high-energy magic building, footnote, it was here that the Thom, hitherto believed to be the smallest possible particle of magic, was successfully demonstrated to be made up of resins, double footnote, literally thingies, or reality fragments. Currently, research indicates that each resin is itself made up of a combination of at least five flavors known as up, down, sideways, sex appeal, and peppermint. <laughs> that was a good one, not only because it gets into what we've talked about before in that we both really like fantasy that tries to talk about like the metaphysics of magic and i think that's great um but it's also a parody of the five the flavors of resins are a satire of this particular naming scheme which is very strange that a lot of modern phys physicists have chosen for different known quarks mm. up down strange charm and beauty in order of discovery and increasing mass is it not up down top bottom strange and charmed or at least that's what we had in our science or physics textbook. I don't know. Well, yeah, but the idea is that it's making fun of that. And I like the sex appeal and peppermint flavors of resins. Those definitely go hand in hand. When I think sex appeal, I think peppermint. Yeah. Oh, God, that's going to be the yep. quote for the episode, isn't it? <laughs> that is. That's the pull quote right there. <laughs> yeah, that's on the sizzle reel. Uh, what's a thing that made you laugh out loud? I'm going to go with, well, obviously we mentioned the um, the naming conventions in the village, you know, like Weaver, the character, that kind of thing. But then there's a line where they're like looking for leaves at one stage and Nanny Og is like, it's not like they grow on trees. at a lot of different things in this book like I think I like annoyed Sam a little bit because I was laughing so much while reading next to her on the couch but 
I put as my thing that made me laugh out loud, possibly one of the silliest moments in this book is when Magrat is looking at all the different kinds of armor in the armory. There was armor for men. There was armor for horses. There was armor for fighting dogs. There was even armor for ravens, although King Gert, the stupid's plan for an aerial attack force, had never really gotten off the ground. It is like not the cleverest joke at all in this book, but I found it incredibly charming and funny. King mm. Gert, the stupid's aerial <laughs> raven attack force. Yeah. Uh, what's something that made you think? I'm going to go with they're talking about like how you can change history. I'm just waiting for the I'm just waiting for the quote to load. Yeah, um so then they also make a reference to Catch 22 with um Yasarian. Um there are indeed such things as parallel universes, although parallel is hardly the right word. Universes swoop and spiral around one another like some mad weaving machine or a squadron of Yasarians with middle ear trouble. And they branch. But, and this is important, not all the time. The universe doesn't much care if you tread on a butterfly. There are plenty more butterflies. Gods might note the, the fall of a sparrow, but they don't make any effort to catch them. Shoot the dictator and prevent the war? But the dictator is merely the tip of the whole festering boil of social pus from which dictators emerge. Shoot one and there'll be another one along in a minute. Shoot him too? Why not shoot everyone and invade Poland? In 50 years, 30 years, 10 years time, the world will be very nearly back on its old course. History always has a great weight of inertia. Almost always. I feel like there's... I heard this on NPR the other day, where they were talking about Neil how Patrick there's this big... <laughs> I, there's been this like, weird discussion. Like, okay, everything online about the Ukraine-Russian war in the U.S. has been kind of gross to me because people here are treating it like it's a game or like it's entertainment, and I really hate that. But there's this like big discussion online of, well, why doesn't the U.S. just assassinate Putin? And that would cause all like all this to stop because it's really Putin's war. And like not only does that show like an incredible like not misunderstanding of what war is and what the laws of war and the conventions of war are now, because anyway, I'm not even going to get into it. But it's also kind of this idea of dictators exist for a reason like if you killed one of them you don't think that there's not somebody else who's just going to step into his place like there's you know there's this idea that like dictators we focus all of our attention on dictators and like how evil they are but we don't focus on all of the things that allow them to exist in a society and i i really appreciated this description of that yeah I mean, the main thing was, like, everyone is so fixated on the concept of, like, oh, if you could go back in time, would you kill Hitler? You know, and it's, like, really, like, it wouldn't make an awful lot of difference because of how fucked society is. And, yeah. like, I'm not, I'm not saying that you couldn't save loads of innocent lives, but someone right. would probably step in to fill that power vacuum. And, like, if you take Hitler out, yeah, sure, but you're taking him out of the context of a Germany which was, like, massively screwed over by the Treaty of Versailles, by international relations, and they wanted something to change. So, like, someone else probably would have stepped up. Maybe they wouldn't have done things as 
awfully as Hitler did, but like someone still would have taken the reins um, and tried to fight for German independence. It's interesting, too, because the that passage also implies that because of the inertia of history, which we talked about in Eric, right, when we talked about how Rincewind inadvertently makes all of these things happen and sort. We talked about how history like has this path, but this there's this idea that if you took out Hitler and so, it, like and you took out the person who stepped up behind Hitler, like maybe you would become Hitler. Like there is a way in which like when you start messing with time, you could make it worse or you could become the thing that allows it to happen, right? Like like Rincewind does in the Sortian War. Like he's the one who lets in the Ephebans into Sort. I thought a lot about the scene where it's in the it's at the very end of the book during the conflict that the showdown between the queen and granny so granny says no magic at all this it's just that you've been away too long things change the land belongs to humans now that can't be the case said the queen humans take they plow with iron they ravage the land some do i'll grant you that others put back more than they take they put back love They've got soil in their bones. They tell the land what it is. That's what humans are for. Without humans, land would be just a bit of ground with green bits on it. They wouldn't even know that they're trees. We're all down here together, madam, us and the land. It's not just land anymore. It's a country. It's a horse that's been broken and shod or a dog that's been tamed. Every time people put a plow in the soil or planted a seed, they took the land further away from you, said Granny. Things change. Again, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about in Troll Bridge, but it's a more empathetic and optimistic view of development in terms of, like, ideally, the land and humans should coexist together. You take from the land to survive, but you should put back. You know, you you put love back in, you put care back in. And so for the witches, this idea of life being a cycle in which you take, but you give back, right? You have this obligation and that's what's right. Whereas the queen and as, as granny says, some humans just want to take and take and take. And it really brought to mind, you know, what we're really struggling about in terms of global warming and climate disaster. And this idea of we've been taking and taking for too long, but we actually have an obligation to put back as well. We're, we've, we've gotten the cycle out of whack basically. So I thought that was really, really good. Yeah. Oh, th- this book also has a um, personal is not the same as important. Granny Weatherwax says it. It does. I, I forgot about that, but yeah, I noted it in my notes. What did you think about the fact that she says something that Carrot, I guess in the context of the publication order, Carrot will say this later. Mm, I don't know. It felt it felt more important when Carrot says it because, mm-hmm. like, he has to talk Vimes down from crossing a line that Vimes shouldn't cross. So I think it's more important in the context of that. But it's it's nice to know that it's a unifying idea within the Discworld. Because we are reminded in this book that Carrot comes from mountains that are near Lanker. I wonder if it's, like, a Lanker ph- philosophy or a Lanker bit of wisdom. Yeah, the idea is because that he brought this idea. Chief Iron founder Samus. Yeah, yeah, the idea that he brought this idea to Ankh Morpork. Maybe it didn't originate with him, but he actually believes it. But it's something that's like part of Lanker Ramtop culture. 
found that interesting. I mean, I also wonder if he ever met Granny Weatherwax because there is that line in Guards Guards where he goes down to see Magrat. Like there is a local witch that the dwarves do have dealing with dealings with and it's Mistress Garlic, right? Magrat. And so I do wonder if he's ever met Granny or Nanny. I mean, if you've met Magrat in the context of being a witch, you've probably met Granny and Nanny because they're always there. So it, it would be interesting to know what, if any, influence the witches have had on Car- Carrot's development or just on the society that Carrot grew up around in general. I also don't think Carrot and Granny have the same way of viewing the world. I think Carrot is much more black and white than Granny is. I mean, Granny is also black and white, but just in a very... She has a different black and white paradigm, I should say, than Carrot. Yeah, definitely. All right. Anything else you want to say? Yeah, does Terry Pratchett have an obsession with bowling? I don't know. Why do you ask? He seems to be an awful lot of references to bowling. Maybe he um, liked bowling. In this one, I, I picked up on it a lot. Yeah. Because they talk about like the, the town where they're like, oh, the Magnificent Seven have gone bowling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then they talk about Nanny Og's mind being so wide it can fish several football fields and a bowling alley. And Nanny Og partakes in bowling at the fair. So it's like, is he a big fan of bowling? I, I don't know. I'd have to go back to other books and keyword search like bowling. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, we know he writes a lot about hats and he famously wears a hat in most of his public mm. appearances. So I do have a question for you. What is a boiled sweet that does not exist in the US? A boiled sweet is just like... I mean, yeah, they're kind of like, a, a lot of old people have loads of them in their pockets. I suppose the closest thing you'd have would be like, like, do you know like what a Werther's is? Yeah. Yeah, kind of like that. Like that's boiled toffee. Werther's is an old person candy here. So yeah, that would make sense. That kind of thing, but they're more just like boiled sugar and nothing else. And they're usually kept in your pocket uh, in a little plastic kind of wrap around them and then they go warm and slightly soft in your pocket well we get to see nanny carrying a lot of them like she's constantly eating them or like she uses that to get pusey her grandchild to run into the circle so yeah i was just like i don't actually know what this is so thank you for explaining that to me Mm. all right next episode we didn't get much death in this novel or in the short story, but we will in the next installment of the Grim Reaper series, Soul Music. So looking forward to another death book. Are you looking forward to another death book, Nigel? Woo! Looking forward to another death book. I'm looking forward to him presumably playing the saxophone. I don't know. <laughs> Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? You can find me on Twitter at SpicyNigel. And you can find me in your ears, my show Hyperfixations. Recently, we put out an uh, April Fool's Day episode of Hyperfixations uh, yesterday. That was very fun to do. Um, And then Archive Admirers is also. Yeah, you can find those both wherever you listen to podcasts. Where can we find you, Tessa? You can find me at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And you can also find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog. That's on Twitter, at Monkey Backlog. And 
on that podcast, we are also releasing a second episode every week called Sam Watches Star Trek, where I ask Sam questions about Star Trek that she has watched for the first time. So if you're a Star Trek fan and you like the format of this podcast, check it out. You can find us, Nanny Ogs Book Club, on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogs Book Club. Please tweet at us, message us. We love talking about Discworld and hearing all your thoughts and the references and the connections that you make. That's that's why we spend two to two and a half hours every book talking about it. So it's very interesting to hear what you have to say. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. The waters of the Lanker gushed below. No one crossed the same water twice, even on a bridge. Ridcully dropped a pebble. It went plunk. It all works out, said Granny Weatherwax, somewhere. Your young wizard knows that. He just puts daft words around it. He'd be quite bright if only he'd look at what's in front of him. He wants to stay here for a while, said Ridcully gloomily. He flicked another pebble into the depths. Seems fascinated by the stones. I can't say no, can I? The king's all for it. He says other kings have always had fools, so he'll try to have a wise man around, just in case that works better. Granny laughed. And there's young Diamanda going to be up and about any day now, she said. What do you mean? Oh, nothing. That's the thing about the future. It could turn out to be anything. And everything. She picked up a pebble. It hit the water at the same time as one of Ridcully's own, making a double plunk. Do you think, said Ridcully, that... Somewhere, it went all right? Yes, here! Granny softened at the sight of his sagging shoulders. But there, too, she said. What? I mean, that somewhere Mushroom Ridcully married Esmeralda Weatherwax and they lived... Granny gritted her teeth. Lived happily ever after. More or less. As much as anyone does. How'd you know? I've been picking up bits of her memories. She seemed happy enough, and I ain't easily pleased. How can you do that? I try to be good at everything I do. Did she say anything about... She didn't say nothing. She don't know we exist. Don't ask questions. It's enough to know that everywhere hap- everything happens somewhere, isn't it? Ridcully tried to grin. Is that the best you can tell me, he said? It's the best there is. Or the next best thing. Where does it end? On a summer night, with couples going their own ways and silky purple twilight growing between the trees, from the castle, long after the celebrations had ended, faint laughter and the ringing of little silver bells, and, from the empty hillside, only the silence of the elves. The End